0: Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Ed Smith, head of asset allocation research at Rathbones, and Mary McDougall, personal finance writer at Investors Chronicle. Earlier this week, the Bank of England reported that UK consumer price inflation, or CPI for short, had fallen from 1.5% to 0.8% in April. But an increasing concern among some analysts is that inflation is set to rise, hard as that may be to imagine in the current environment. So, Ed, why are some analysts worried about a rise in inflation when it's just fallen to 0.8 percent?
1: Well, um, some analysts are concerned that this is more of a supply shock than a demand shock. So on the one hand, people have been fired or furloughed. Others can't get to the places that they want to spend their money. And others are saving more because they're worried they might get fired or furloughed in the future. But on the other hand, supply chains are disrupted, factories are closed, and I think people are worried that as they start to reopen, social distancing requirements may limit production and raise prices as demand starts to come back. So I think people are looking beyond just the current couple of months and looking to, to the future, and worried that supply will be more disruptive than demand. And at the same time, some people, perhaps the same people or maybe different people, think that huge increases in the money supply that we're seeing as a result of all this stimulus that's been injected that will lead to inflation.
0: How reliable a measure of inflation is CPI?
1: Well, at the moment, about, I think it's 16% of the CPI basket was unobservable in April, according to the ONS. Uh, That's because the people who monitor this stuff just Mm. couldn't either get to where the prices are are priced to to analyse it or because the sector is totally shuttered. And then we've got to ask, is the rest of the basket, which is based on what the average consumer bought last year, Is that really representative at the moment? I think that's a reasonable question to ask. Um, But I think hopefully it should become much more representative again as lockdown eases further in June and and beyond.
0: Okay, so if inflation does rise, um, as some people uh, fear, I mean, how soon could we expect this to happen?
1: Well, I think we should have a pretty clear idea uh, if if supply pressures are going to outweigh demand pressures by the beginning of the autumn. And I'm saying that under the the big assumption that we don't get a second wave, which of course is, is, is a bold claim to to make at the moment, one way or the other. Um, so I think we should have some idea of that. Um, and then looking at beyond that, about whether the stimulus will feed through into um, in inflation, that's um, difficult to say when that might happen. I mean, I think, uh, to be clear, at uh, uh, Rathbones, that's not our base case. Uh, I mean, first, the history of pandemics suggests that they are more, have always been more of a demand shock than they've been a supply shock, even the ones that have disproportionately affected prime age workers uh, uh, like us, you know, uh, um, which is unlike uh, COVID-19, which tends to disproportionately affect older people. The Chinese experience this year also suggests that supply will bring back, uh, will uh, come back on faster than demand. And then also, you know, we've got to, to think about that, uh, this creation of money argument. Uh, well, it's not just about the speed um, it's not just about the creation of money it's about the speed with which it circulates the economy you know, in jargon terms that's called the velocity of money and that could be held back for the for the first year or two by higher precautionary saving by firms repaying much of the government stimulus which has been largely in the form of short-term loans and, and so on and uh, how long that will continue for is difficult to say but our base case is that will continue to weigh on inflation for the next couple of years rather than lift it
0: okay so um i suppose a pertinent question what types of investment assets could be negatively affected by a rise in
1: inflation right well returns from anything which pays a fixed coupon like a conventional bond conventional credit yeah, they're going to be worse off uh, equities in general tend to do best when inflation is actually a little above average. And that's because, but that could be because average inflation uh, is usually due more to demand than supply, or at least it has been since the um, uh, 1980s. Um, now, you'd say, if you're an equity investor, you certainly want to be focusing on companies with strong pricing power. ability to pass on rising costs to your customers Uh, and I think you'd want to be focusing on that whether you think inflation is going to be a little bit above average or whether you're more in the camp that it's going to you know rise to to worrying levels I think anything higher than a four percent inflation rate equities across the board tend to suffer or at least that's been the experience in in the 20th century
0: okay um of any other risks to, um, you know, holding equities to counter inflation.
1: Um, yeah, well, I think the, that main one is is pricing power. You've also got to consider uh, debt dynamics as well. If we do get a rise in inflation, will that mean that the Bank of England or you know, whatever central bank? Is in charge of the the market in in which your equity is domiciled. Are they going to start raising interest rates, and is that going to cause an increase in your borrowing costs? Uh, so you've got to consider that uh, dynamic uh, as as well.
0: Okay. Now you mentioned it wasn't so good for bonds, but hmm. um, is it all bonds, or are there any types of bonds that be better options um, if inflation rises?
1: Yeah, well, there's uh, there's inflation-linked bonds, or sometimes they're called index-linked bonds, but, you know, it's the same, referring to the same thing. Um, and with some of those, yeah, they're not all uh, created equally. Some of those, it's just the coupon payment that's inflation-protected, whilst with others, the final redemption payment at the end of the bond's life is also uh, protected. So you've got to be careful yeah, the but, there. But, um, but but yeah, they're certainly very different to conventional fixed coupon bonds.
0: Okay. Now, um, we talked about things maybe to avoid and things maybe to turn to. Um, but should investors take action now um, in anticipation of a possible rise in inflation and reduce or remove assets that could be adversely affected from it by their portfolios?
1: Uh, Well, as I said, I think we're still in the disinflation camp as our base case. So we wouldn't be rushing to tilt portfolios towards um, inflation protected assets just because of that but the price of inflation linked government bonds does look relatively attractive compared to conventional government bonds because expectations for inflation in the market have fallen to such low levels that perhaps isn't quite uh, commensurate with the, the risks um and um, now, in terms of your equity selection, you know we mentioned pricing power as a way to protect yourself from inflation. Companies with or sectors with pricing power tend to be, you know, a good investment you know, uh, uh, at any point in time. Um, so, yeah, you know, actually, it, it, we should be looking towards those. Sort of quality balance sheet, cash compounding companies with strong profitability, strong return on invested capital. Um, you know, even if inflation doesn't rise through the roof, which we hope it won't.
0: Okay. No, you look, You mentioned um, you know these types of equities as perhaps a, a better option. Are there any other types of assets that could be a useful hedge against rising inflation?
1: Well, gold is often the the classic uh, example. Um, I think its inflation protecting abilities that are sometimes a bit overplayed. I mean, if you had bought gold in the nineteen seventies, you would have made an inflation adjusted loss until uh, uh, yeah for about forty years. <laughs> but. Um, But yeah, there are plenty of times when uh, gold does seem to rise as inflation expectations rise. And that's largely because of its relationship with uh, real interest rates. So interest rates after adjusting for inflation, that's because gold uh, doesn't pay a coupon. It doesn't really have that intrinsic uh, value. So if you can get more uh, money from simply holding your money in cash and earning an interest rate um then or real interest rate then um gold will tend to decrease but if you're if if holding cash is going to be eroded away by inflation then gold tends to tends to do um, better
0: okay thank you ed some really helpful points This year has undoubtedly been dire for equity income investors as companies have slashed dividends in a bid to conserve cash amid the coronavirus pandemic. But Mary, you've been looking at a way in which investors can still get an income from equity investments. What is this?
2: Hi, Leonora. Yes, there was a report from Janice Henderson that came out this week saying that 45% of UK dividends and 35% of global dividends are at risk of being cut this year. Um... But there's also the problem for equity income investors um, that high-yielding stocks in the UK are in low-growth sectors, um, typically, such as banks, mining and oil and gas. Um, so this is another way that they've lost out in terms of performance. Um, so an increasingly popular strategy is to, vest- to invest in growth stocks and sell parts of your portfolio as you need income. I spoke to Rachel Winter at Killick, he said that they used this strategy and said that for a client targeting a 4 or 5% income, they might look to take 2% in natural yields and the remaining 2 to 3% by selling parts of the portfolio. Um, so you need to be quite flexible to adopt this approach. Uh, there may be times where you think some of your stocks look overvalued, so that might be a good time to take your income. Um, or if there's a time when you need to take income, you'll have to look at what's best to sell at that point in time um, on the basis of valuations and earnings estimates. Another strategy for how to do this is to just sell a bit of everything, but this could land you with hefty dealing fees. Um, so you need to look at the charging structure of your platforms. Many of them don't charge to sell funds. So if you're heavily invested in funds, um, that could be a more appropriate way of doing it.
0: Okay. Um, are there any other benefits to doing this other than getting an income?
2: Yes, there are. So. It gives your portfolio more diversification um, by investing in growth stocks, as I mentioned, because you are likely to have more exposure to different geographies and different sectors because the UK is one of the highest dividend-paying countries. So, for example, the US tends to pay much lower dividends than the UK, but the stock market um, has had very strong performance, um, especially in the tech sector. Um, It can also be tax-efficient to invest for growth, So outside of tax wrappers, dividend investors have a £2,000 personal allowance per year where they don't pay tax. But on top of that, basic rate taxpayers pay 7.5% tax, higher rate taxpayers pay 32.5% and additional rate taxpayers pay 38.1%. So that's for income investors. By contrast, for growth investors, the capital gains tax allowance is much higher at £12,300 per year. And if your overall annual income is below 50000 you pay 10% tax on gains in excess of the capital gains tax allowance. And if your income is above 50000 the rate is 20%. So that's quite a lot lower than the 38% on dividends.
0: Okay, so um, what could be good growth investments to hold for uh, taking this approach?
2: It could be good to go for diversified global, global equity growth fund. Rachel suggested Scottish Mortgage, which has been very popular and had standout performance this year. It's got exposure to companies that could benefit from permanent lifestyle changes as a result of coronavirus and the lockdown. Um, lots of exposure to to tech and the US, and it's been it's up twenty seven percent over the last year um, against a benchmark that's down one percent. Um, but I had a look at the um, the premium say it's trading at a 3% premium um so you need to be to be wary of that
0: okay um I mean this all sounds good but are there any um, risks associated with selling chunks of growth investments to create an income
2: uh yeah so growth stocks are generally more volatile um then value stocks and timing the market's really hard and you have to avoid being a forced seller at the bottom of the market because this could erode your capital very quickly um so it's important to have a a good cash reserve um financial advisors suggest at least one year's worth um, of income to help mitigate against being a forced seller yeah you also might benefit from splitting your income out between um, discretionary spending and essential spending and making sure that you have enough guaranteed income to cover your essential spending.
0: Okay. Now, Ed, um, do you think that um, the extent of dividend cuts is so bad that income investors should instead hold growth investments, as Mary has been setting out, and then sell chunks of them to create an income?
1: Yeah, I mean, so our equities team are penciling in a forty-seven percent drop in FTSE dividends this year, so slightly uh, more pessimistic than than the uh, numbers that um, that Mary um, said the market were expecting. Things may turn out better, but they really may not. Now, such a large contraction is highly unusual. Uh, we've looked at contractions over the last hundred years, and most of the times dividends contract by a fraction of what. Earnings do, and sometimes why not at all. But they're contracting this time in part because of regulation and the covenants entailed with receiving government stimulus, which means they can't pay out a dividend uh, this year. But it's also because many of those high dividend-paying companies have weak balance sheets and poor cash flows that barely cover dividend payments. So, in other words, investors who might have overly focused on high dividend payers may have perhaps unwittingly funneled their portfolios into some of the lowest quality companies. Uh, And that's clearly not a great investment strategy. And Mary made some great points about uh, diversification, which should lead to better investment outcomes. And by restricting your investment universe Um, you may be doing yourself damage and taking a total return approach, taking income from capital at times, may mean that you are better off in the long run because the capital value of your portfolio, which now is now invested in higher quality companies with better prospects, could grow by so much more than a standard income portfolio.
0: Okay, so some pros and cons. I mean, if you can take the risks of doing this, I mean, what sort of growth investments would you say are suitable for doing this with
1: investors that need an income quite often have a lower willingness and ability to take on risk. So I think you're going to want to be careful about not going too racy in your growth um, stocks. Um, yeah, so sort of don't be tempted to sort of go into the sort of some small cap biotech firms in order to try and grow your portfolio. It's probably not going to be a great strategy for the average income investor. So I think instead, look at growth stocks with low leverage, strong profit margins, strong return on invested capital, um, top quintile long-term expected growth. But perhaps the ones that have started to pay a dividend already so that are a little further along in their lifespan um, than, than sort of a startup company, ones that have got a good cash flow, they've started to pay a dividend already. And that means that capital doesn't need to do all the work, but you're setting yourself up for sort of better, better growth and a, a, better, uh, a dividend that should grow more uh, tomorrow.
0: Okay, thank you, Ed, and see Mary's full guide on how to create an income from growth in this week's Investors Chronicle of a website. The coronavirus pandemic has resulted in many parts of the world coming to a standstill to try and contain the outbreak. This has resulted in less trade and travel and is in sharp contrast to the globalisation trend of recent decades, in particular in developed economies, but also increasingly in developing ones. So, Ed, is this the end of globalisation?
1: Well, um, I think, first off, the ratio of global trade to global output GDP, that actually peaked over a decade ago. Um, so you could say that globalisation as a continuous process has already ended quite some time ago. But, of course, yeah, that ratio hasn't fallen. So, uh, and some say that that's more likely with covid um, as, as you say, um, I'm not so sure about the extent that this catalyzes a uh, move away from globalization, a deglobalization, if you like, um, although certainly a lot of analysts are talking uh, about it. And that's because let, let's just assume that companies are left to their own devices. I think firms just deciding to source their supplies entirely domestically is somewhat uh, irrational. Now, yes, you wouldn't want to source all of your widgets from China anymore, but you wouldn't want to source them from any single country, including your own, because any country could go into pandemic lockdown a bit at, uh, uh, at any given time. The rational choice is um, diversification. Yeah, so just as investors like to diversify your portfolio, if you are a... Um, uh, you know, a chief executive of a of a company, you'd want to diversify your supply chain. And there was a really interesting uh, recent blog post from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York that showed that for American firms that already had diversified supply chains suffered far less disruption over the last couple of months than those who had decided just to source their supply chains from one country in particular, China. So actually the outlook for this may, be, may not be be so clearly de it just means that we might get a more diversified form of globalization and perhaps some of those other countries in East Asia may do relatively better than China.
0: Okay I mean how does this um, let's say translate to investing I mean how will it affect markets and what are the key things that investors now need to consider in view of perhaps uh, these subtle shifts
1: yeah, so I think um, if you're somebody who likes to invest in in, in emerging markets and developing markets, you might want to question um, the amount you have exposed to China, either directly or indirectly through companies that are selling in in into China. And perhaps you might want to consider better prospects for other uh, countries that are that are big on global trade, but are perhaps being Leasing out a little bit to China, like uh, Vietnam or or perhaps um, Indonesia. Um, So I think that's something to uh, consider uh, back home. Again, you know, actually, Western companies that have high Chinese sales have actually relatively underperformed for about ten years, believe it or not. uh, Even though it's often touted as a great uh, theme. so, yeah, you want to be careful about them. But again, perhaps it would be better off looking at companies that have perhaps a, a broader global footprint. I think if this results in, if this does result in deglobalization, you know, if I'm you know, not quite right on this, and this does re- result in deglobalization, or perhaps politicians just enforce that upon people, um, it's not going to be great for anyone. Um, yeah, there's going to be efficiency losses, yeah, globalization helps the world allocate capital more efficiently based on comparative advantage. There's going to be losses there and and, and I think um, yeah, there's going to be some clear losers from that transport, logistics um uh, companies that would face very high wage bills if they had to bring some of their low cost production back home. Um, But there could be winners, small domestic uh, manufacturers who perhaps haven't been able to compete with some of the lower cost peers abroad.
0: Okay. Um, I mean, should people totally avoid China or China exposure? And are there any other types of um, investments that investors should avoid as a result of what's happening? Yeah, I mean,
1: I think it's uh, there's so much uncertainty at the moment. You we know, really uh, it's it's far from clear exactly what firms are going to do after this it's far from clear what the political the geopolitical landscape is going to look like um, after this if you know, trump leaves the white house um uh, and, and, and biden comes in from january next year whilst there probably will be still be pressure on china the end of a sort of globalized order is likely to not come to, to to fruition and we will return to a more rules-based trading regime globally so i don't think there's any foregone conclusions at, at the moment but i think you know, we want to encourage uh diversification you know when there's so much uncertainty you want to reduce the amount of idiosyncratic risk in your portfolios you don't want to just too concentrated in any one country or any one sector or any one stock um, and that uh, um, but at the same time that doesn't mean you want to totally avoid China or, 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 or trading companies.
0: Okay I mean are there any um, sectors or types of investments that could benefit from the shifts and changes that you've mentioned and should investors increase their allocations to them?
1: Um. Yeah, so I guess if uh, some production was brought back home, then, uh, then there could be opportunities for um, perhaps mid-cap manufacturers in, 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 in stock markets. Uh, but again, yeah, you know, they tend to be a little more cyclical, a little more high risk. So right now, as we're in the depths of this sort of contraction, uh, perhaps, might, perhaps it might be not quite the right time to add to that today Um, given that you perhaps still be wanting to look for more quality defensive companies at the moment rather than more cyclical ones. Um, What what else? I think also if you do get um, some uh, manufacturing brought back home, that could lead to higher wage pressures at home. So companies that perhaps might benefit from um, uh, having Customers better off but don't have such a high wage bill themselves may be something to consider. But that's a know yeah, that's a bit of a holy grail, quite difficult to find.
0: Okay, thank you, Ed. Some really interesting things to consider. That brings us to the end of today's show, but see today's investors chronicle or the website at www.investorschronicle.co.uk for more and good ways to create an income investments to protect against inflation, and how to play the investment opportunities that are emerging as the economic environment changes. Thank you for listening, stay healthy and have a good weekend.